When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, it's Outbound Flight, a standalone story from many people's favorite Star Wars author, Timothy Zahn. Outbound Flight is the story of a Republic expedition to the Unknown Regions, led by Jedi Master Joris Sabaoth, and its encounter with the Chiss, and one of their military leaders, Commander Mithron Nerodu, better known as Thrawn. But first, we have a listener question. This one from Twitter, from listener Rusar Vareth. Rusar says, I have a question about Force Ghosts. Can you talk about how they work? I've always thought it was weird that Kenobi disappeared a few years after his death in Heir to the Empire, but Luke could still hear him somehow. Did Yoda and Anakin disappear as well? And how was Luke able to appear to his grandson Cade decades after Luke's death? And finally, do you think Force ghosts are underused in Legends? Thank you and have a good evening. Well, thank you very much for the question, Rusar. And thank you for being a loyal listener to the show. Force ghosts. Well, it's another one of the many topics in Star Wars that is just littered with inconsistencies. Let's start with what we know. A Force ghost is when a Jedi dies and becomes one with the Force. Most of the time, the Jedi's body disappears at death, although not always. See Qui-Gon Jinn. Force ghosts can appear and talk to anyone, but mostly they appear and speak to other Jedi to give them a guidance or advice. Now, the Sith can also live on after death, but that is more of an essence transfer type thing into another living being or into an object. In Legends, it does get pretty confusing. To the best of my understanding, the Force Ghost state is kind of an intermediate state before the Jedi's soul moves on to the netherworld of the Force. Now, there is no set time frame for this, more like when the Force Ghost believes that its usefulness is complete and it can peaceably move on. I believe Obi-Wan felt that he had completed his mission concerning the Skywalker family. He had helped guide Luke to bringing Anakin back to the light side of the Force and had helped mentor Luke through the first four to five years after the fall of the Empire. As far as Cade Skywalker goes, I've never read those stories, but I would assume that Luke may have had visions during his life 
that his grandson would need his guidance. And so Luke decided not to move on to the netherworld of the Force until he was finished. As for whether or not Force ghosts should have been used more in Legends, I don't really know. I think Legends utilizes holocrons in certain ways that could have taken the place of Force ghosts, but there are some aspects of Legends line stories, particularly the stories that were published before the prequel films were finished, that I think are missing some of the spiritual aspects of Star Wars, but that's just my opinion. So, thanks for the questions, Rusar. And uh, for everyone else, if you would like to contact me, you can email the show, swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask a question or leave a comment. It's always fun to chat with folks. Now, it's time for today's book, Outbound Flight by Timothy Zahn. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story takes place about five years after the Battle of Naboo and follows two storylines that intersect about three-quarters of the way through the book. The first storyline follows a young smuggler, George Cardas, and his two shipmates, Dak and Maris. The three are on the run from Praga the Hut. In desperation, Cardas uses random hyperspace coordinates to jump into the unknown regions and try to escape. But somehow the hut follows. When the ship returns to real space, they find they're not alone. A small flotilla of alien ships surrounds them. The smugglers surrender, but Praga's ship attacks. Even though the hut's ships are larger and more heavily armed, the alien ships wipe them out. Now the smugglers are taken captive and introduced to the aliens, blue-skinned humanoids with glowing red eyes, called Chiss, and their commander, Mithron Nerodu, who Cardos will come to know better as Thrawn. Thrawn is intrigued by the smugglers, and he, Cardos, and Maris learn from each other. Cardos tells Thrawn about the Republic and the growing military powers of the Trade Federation and the Separatists, while Thrawn explains the political hierarchy of the Chiss Ascendancy and its military doctrine of waging war only after the opponent attacks first. It's something that Thrawn disagrees with the rest of his people. He believes that there are some times where preemptive strikes are warranted for defense. Thrawn puts this philosophy into action in an encounter with the Vagari, a nomadic alien race of conquerors and slavers that control much of the space around the Chiss Ascendancy, but they have not invaded Chiss-controlled space. Yet. Thrawn manipulates the Vagari into a firefight. The Chiss win the battle and capture one Vagari warship, but Thrawn is badly injured in the fight. The incident catches the eyes of the Chiss military leaders and Thrawn's family, who will send Admiral Arlani and Thrawn's brother, Mithras Sifis, better known as Thras, to investigate. The second storyline begins on Coruscant. Jedi Master Joris Sabaoth 
is trying to get more funding and resources for the outbound flight project, an expedition into the unknown regions, and eventually to neighboring galaxies. 17 Jedi and nearly 50,000 colonists will make up the expedition. Outbound flight itself consists of six dreadnought cruisers attached to a central storage core that holds more than 10 years' worth of resources. Sabayoth demands more funding from the Galactic Senate, but Chancellor Palpatine is more focused on the growing problem of the Separatist worlds. Palpatine's aide, Kinman Doriana, tells Sabayoth that if he can help resolve a dispute on the planet Barlock, the Senate may be persuaded to give him more funding. Sabayoth agrees and heads to Barlock with his Padawan, Lorana Jinsler. But the Jedi Council decides to keep an eye on Sabayoth as well, and sends Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker to keep tabs on the overbearing Jedi Master. On Barlock, Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Lorana discover a plot to bomb the negotiations Sabayoth is hosting. They believe some disgruntled miners are to blame, but little do they know, Doriana is actually behind the plot, acting on behalf of his true master, Darth Sidious. The Jedi foil the attack, but the attempt angers Sabayoth, who stops the negotiations and orders both sides to agree on terms that he sets. Now, with the mining dispute over, the Senate releases additional funds to the outbound flight project, and Sabayoth organizes the Jedi and the colonists who volunteer for the expedition. Just before outbound flight is set to embark, Lorana meets a young man at the Jedi Temple who introduces himself as Dean Jinsler, her younger brother. Lorana never knew her family, being taken by the Jedi when she was 10 months old, and she's confused by Dean's animosity toward her and the Jedi. Dean says their parents continued to follow any news of Lorana as she studied at the temple, building a shrine to her in their home. But Dean also says they continually overlooked him because he wasn't Force-sensitive. Lorana tells Dean that she hopes he can overcome his anger, but Dean doesn't want to hear of it. Meanwhile, Darth Sidious orders Doriana and Vice Lord Siv Kav of the Trade Federation to ambush outbound flight in the Unknown Regions and destroy it. However, just as it's about to leave Coruscant, the Jedi Council orders Obi-Wan and Anakin to accompany outbound flight until it reaches the edge of the galaxy. This enrages Sidious, who tells Doriana he must get Skywalker off the flight by any means necessary. Now immediately, tensions arise on outbound flight after takeoff as Sabayoth begins ordering the crew and colonists around. Their frustrations reach a boil when the Jedi Master orders all the children be tested for Force sensitivity. Those that prove high are taken from their parents and sent to a Jedi school that Sabayoth orders constructed in the Central Core. But these aren't infants. Most of the children are 5 to 10 years old. The more the colonists protest Sabayoth's orders, the more dictatorial he becomes. Obi-Wan tries to talk to Sabayoth numerous times, but the Jedi Master won't listen, saying he and the Jedi know best. Just as outbound flight makes its final stop in Republic space, Chancellor Palpatine arrives. He says there's a crisis on the planet Reluxa that needs Jedi mediation. 
He says the Jedi Council wants Obi-Wan and Anakin to tend to those issues. So the two disembark and watch as outbound flight jumps into the unknown regions. Meanwhile, Thrawn and his Chiss expeditionary forces discover the Trade Federation battle fleet. The Chiss easily defeat the droid fighters and take Doriana and Cav into custody. Under questioning, Doriana tries to convince Thrawn that outbound flight is a danger to the Chiss, especially the Jedi. He says they're looking to make contact with a powerful alien invasion force outside the edge of the galaxy. Thrawn agrees, telling the two that the Chiss have encountered a very small contingent of these outsiders before and know how great a danger they could pose to the galaxy. Now, while Thrawn prepares for outbound flight to arrive, Cardos steals a Chiss shuttle and flees, but he's captured by a Vagari warfleet. Cardos tells the Vagari about the droid technology the Chiss have taken from the Trade Federation fleet, enticing the Vagari to invade Chiss space looking for the Trade Federation fleet. When outbound flight arrives in Chiss space, Thrawn prevents it from re-entering hyperspace by using a gravity well projector. This enrages Sabayoth, and as the two sides prepare for battle, the Vagari fleet arrives. As the Vagari attack outbound flight, Thrawn takes advantage of the situation and uses reprogrammed droid fighters to attack the Vagari. Eventually, the Vagari are defeated and flee, but not before severely damaging outbound flight. Enraged, Sabayoth lashes out at Thrawn, force-choking him. But Doriana comes to Thrawn's rescue, sending the droid freighters to drop radiation bombs in the six dreadnoughts. In an instant, all life in the six warships are snuffed out. After the battle, Thrawn is reprimanded for violating Chiss military doctrine. Thrawn's investigation into outbound flight is cut short, but his brother Thras and Cardos remain. They find Jedi Lorana Dinsler and 57 survivors who were in the central storage core when the radiation bombs detonated in the dreadnoughts. Knowing outbound flight can't stay in Chiss space, Thras orders Cardos back to Thrawn and his fellow smugglers. He and Lorana will steer the ships to a small, habitable world hidden in a nearby nebula. As Thras and Lorana prepare to scuttle outbound flight on the planet, they discover that the other 57 survivors have left the central storage core and entered Dreadnought No. 4, the ship directly opposite Dreadnought No. 1, where Thras and Lorana are located, and the one set to hit the ground first. Thras and Lorana decide to flip outbound flight 180 degrees, protecting the remaining settlers in Dreadnought No. 4, but sacrificing themselves, as their ship, Dreadnought No. 1, crashes first. As Thrawn is brought before one of the heads of the Chiss ruling families, Admiral Arlani and Doriana convince the Aristocra to drop all charges. Thrawn will remain in command of his expeditionary force, patrolling the edges of the Chiss space, preparing for the invasion of the Far Outsiders. Time for a break. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show, everybody. 
here on the Star Wars Legends Lounge, we like to celebrate the stories from the Star Wars Legends line of books. But allow me to take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Rebel Rising tells the story of a young Jin Erso before the events of Rogue One. Orphaned at five years old, Jin is taken in by the radical Saul Guerrera, a man willing to go to any extremes to fight the Empire. But how far will Jin go for the cause? It's a story of tragedy, betrayal, and learning how to believe in oneself. The perfect read for fans of Rogue One. That's Rebel Rising by Beth Revis. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that talks about the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today's episode is Outbound Flight by Timothy Zahn. I remember when I first read this book. I read it right after it was published in 2006. It's one of the few books that I read in hardback. I am a paperback reader. I like to wait until things are in paperback and read them then. But Outbound Flight was given to me as a Christmas present in hardback. So I read it in late 2006. And like most books from Star Wars Legends, I gobbled it up when it first came out. So this is the second time I've read it. And it's been, what, 15 years later? My opinion's changed. There are things in this book that don't work for me. I'm not saying the book is bad, because it isn't. One of the issues I have is Jedi Master Joris Sabayoth. I don't believe him as a Jedi Master. I'm not sure that in at this time, writing this story, that Zahn kind of understood the Jedi in the way that George Lucas envisioned the Jedi and talked about the Jedi, and especially the light side of the Force. Because all throughout this book, Sabayoth orders people around. Sabayoth makes decisions for everyone. Sabayoth dominates everyone. And at no point in time in the book do any of the other Jedi, Yoda, Mace Windu, Obi-Wan, any of them, they don't stop him. They attempt to talk to him, but he dominates those conversations. He tells his other Jedi what he's going to do, how things should be done, and why Jedi are the ones that are best qualified to make all the decisions for everyone in the galaxy. And that's just something that contradicts how I now think of Jedi and how I believe the Jedi, even at this point in time, thought about themselves. I just don't believe that a person like that with those traits would ever make it to the level of Jedi Master without being stopped. Now, 
there are plenty of things in this book that are fun and that really do work for me. I'm not as big of a fan of Thrawn as many people who love Legends. I have always been that way, even back when I was 14 years old and reading the original Timothy Zahn trilogy. I like Thrawn. I am not as passionate, though, about Thrawn as others. I have not read any of the new canon Thrawn books. Uh, Those are on my list. I have not read them yet. I have heard some of the same things that Thrawn is an interesting character, but it's almost as though Thrawn is Sherlock Holmes on steroids, if you understand my meaning, that he can deduce absolutely everything and manipulate every situation to his advantage, that he can predict almost without fail, everything that can happen. Now, I know he doesn't, but it almost seems that way. And, you know, some of that doesn't ring Star Wars to me. I think some of Zahn's books are more science fiction-y than they are science fantasy And I've always looked at Star Wars as a science fantasy. And Zahn pushes it more to the science fiction part of storytelling, which is fine. Zahn's a very good writer. And I understand he is one of the favorites of many people who enjoy Star Wars books. I like Zahn a lot. He's not one of my favorites, but... I will not deny that he's a very gifted storyteller. But I think I prefer the Thrawn of Star Wars Rebels for those that have seen the animated television show. The Thrawn of Rebels, to me, while he has some of the same characteristics as a brilliant tactician and someone who is very logical and can use his powers of deduction to get an advantage in almost every situation. The Throne of Rebels is a villain. And sometimes in Zahn's books about Thrawn, he doesn't seem like a villain. He seems like someone who is simply out for himself and for the betterment of the Chiss ascendancy. I'm wondering if the Thrawn of the live action series that we know we are going to get for anyone who has seen the Mandalorian, I'm wondering if that Thrawn is going to be more like the Thrawn of Rebels, the villain. So, That's enough of me criticizing the book. What does the book do well? The book does a lot of things well. If people like the scenes of battle, there are plenty of good battle descriptions in this book. The interactions between Obi-Wan, Anakin, 
and Sabayoth are really interesting. I may not be a big fan of Sabayoth, and I may not completely believe that he would be in his position in the Jedi Order that he is, does not take away from the fact that the three of them have some fascinating discussions. This is Anakin Skywalker at about 14 years old, 15 years old. And he already shows an inclination into following people that portray authority. There are numerous times in this book where Obi-Wan and Sabayos Padawan Lorana Jensler voice their skepticism over many of the things that Sabayoth says and what he does. But Anakin agrees with a lot of his methods and tactics. There are a few times where Anakin says the galaxy would be a better place if people just listened to folks like Sabayoth who had the authority and the ideas on how to keep peace and order amongst the people. I really thought those discussions were interesting. Perhaps the part of the book that I found the most interesting was a very short section where Lorana Gensler meets her brother, Dean. And Dean talks about how jealous he was of how much his parents adored Lorana. Even though they hadn't seen her since she was 10 months old, they still followed all the news of all of her accomplishments as a youngling and a Padawan and then getting knighted right before outbound flight was set to take off. And how Dean grew up in the shadow of this person that wasn't there. Lorana, of course, is taken aback because, one, she doesn't know her family. And two, while she can be compassionate and understand Dean's anger and frustration, none of this is her fault. She doesn't really understand the hostility that he has toward her in this scene. It's one of those things that I hope we see in Star Wars canon. Maybe it's been there already. I've already said I haven't read most of the canon novels. I've probably read about a third of the ones that are out right now. But I would really like to see a story about a Jedi who was taken as a child and somehow finds their family or their family finds them and how that dynamic works. You know, not just in a chapter of a book, but how that dynamic works over the entire plot of a book or over a handful of episodes in a television show. I just think that would be fascinating. I mean, what do you do if you discover a family that you didn't really know you had? I guess that's not saying it right. You knew you had a family. You knew you had parents, but you don't remember them at all. I can imagine that this actually happens in real life occasionally. And I'm sure it's extremely difficult and extremely emotional, but I find it fascinating. I found this little interaction in this book fascinating. And I hope to see more 
of those types of things in Star Wars storytelling going forward. So, really good discussion this week. It was a really interesting read, especially in how my opinions of the subject I can look back on and say, this is the stuff I really liked when I first read it, but today these things worked for me and these things didn't. And how that changed over time, that's kind of the things that I really find interesting. So, time to wrap up. On next week's episode, we're going to read one of the books that I have not read before. At least I don't remember reading it. Razor's Edge by Martha Wells, a story set during the events of the original trilogy. I think it's the first book on the show that I will have read from the original trilogy. Until then, if you'd like to get in contact with me, please email the show at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask me a question or send a message. I'd love to hear from everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes, and remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.